This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello. I am Ari Lamb, and welcome to Good Faith Effort. We have an unbelievable show for you today. We have David French, one of my favorite writers and thinkers, and we're going to get to all of that. But first, uh, a bit about what we do here. America has long been rooted in the ideas and values of the Hebrew Bible, which is as much our moral founding document as the Constitution is our political founding document. So each week, we take a look at a different portion of the Hebrew Bible, and we speak with thinkers, artists, writers, faith leaders, and more about how this incredible tradition of wisdom can help us interpret, well, just about everything around us, from politics to pop culture and beyond. So let's dive right into the big idea we're going to cover this week, which is basically Genesis chapters 25 to 28, give or take a couple of verses. And these chapters are devoted to the story of the brothers Jacob and Esau. So Esau is the elder brother who's big and strong and kind of a loud and insensitive guy. Like in my head, I kind of think of him as Roy from The Office. And Jacob, on the other hand, the Bible describes as meek and quiet but intelligent. And at the beginning of the story, we're led to believe that Esau is going to be God's chosen, the heir of the biblical patriarchs Abraham and Isaac. And after all, he's the oldest brother. So this is kind of his birthright. But he cares so little about this destiny that one day when he's super hungry at the end of a hard day's work, he sells his birthright to Jacob for uh, what the King James calls a mess of pottage, right? Like a bowl of lentil soup, which, by the way, is a total rookie mistake because, to quote Banya from Seinfeld, soup's not a meal, Jerry. In any case, Jacob, the younger brother, ends up becoming God's chosen and eventually the father of the Israelites. And it shouldn't come as a surprise that this story, this wonderful Hebrew biblical drama of sibling rivalry and the importance of destiny and the perilousness of family plays an important role in the American founding. The New York Constitutional Convention of 1776, for instance, encouraged the American revolt against Britain by warning Americans not to act like Esau. If then God hath given us freedoms, are we not responsible to him for that, as well as other talents? If it is our birthright, let us not sell it for a mess of pottage like Esau, the New Yorkers wrote. And that's basically par for the course in terms of how readers of the Bible remember Esau. So whether it's for the American founders or for Calvin or St. Augustine before them, Esau's the guy who cares more about his stomach than his soul. And the Jewish tradition actually takes that perspective on Esau even further. So in the Jewish sources, Esau is not only like a historic meathead, he's actually evil. And he came to symbolize the Roman Empire and all those others throughout the ages who tormented Jewish people. So like when my kids talk about Esau, they talk about him like he's this anti-Semitic joker, like this anti-Semitic supervillain. Anyway, I tell you all of this because even amid the centuries upon centuries of Bible readers regarding Esau as this like historically bad dude, there's also this one really ancient and really widespread Jewish tradition that speaks glowingly about Esau and treats him like a hero of sorts. And according to this old tradition, there was one thing that we should all truly and genuinely admire about Esau, and that was he had incredible respect for his father. In fact, there's this really important rabbi from 2,000 years ago, Rabbi Simeon ben Gamaliel. Fans of the New Testament will recognize that his father appears in the book of Acts, who was apparently really well-known for honoring his father. And he says in rabbinic literature, look, I know I have this amazing reputation, but I'm nothing compared to Esau. 
To be honest, of all the teachings that emerge from this part of the book of Genesis, I actually think this might be the most important one for this particular moment in American history. Right, so think about it. The one redeeming quality that Esau had was that he treated his father with love and respect. Now, they shared no values in common. I mean, his father Isaac was this pious, godly man, and Esau, frankly, had no time for any of that. But through it all, Esau never let anything ruin his relationship with his dad. And that's worth thinking about. I mean, look, we live in the age of the infamous crazy uncle. And every year on Thanksgiving, which is coming up, there's always that horrible piece in like Slate or wherever in which we're told that it's our job, it's our sacred patriotic duty to tell our crazy uncle exactly what a moron he is. I mean, it's almost a cliche at this point, but every year journalists write guides for how to cope with parents who share different politics than their children as if it's normal that politics should drive parents and children apart. And the best we can do is like manage the situation, like try to make the best of it. But that's frankly insane. Family is a treasure. It's maybe the greatest treasure human civilization ever produced. Even Esau knew that. And in this time of political polarization, rising loneliness, involuntary, even if necessary, isolation, I can't imagine anything more important than the bonds of family than remembering that there are people in your life who are worth loving no matter what. Because if we're going to heal as a nation, it's only going to be by figuring out ways to love people we might not otherwise have much in common with or even want to spend time with at all. And look, I know it's easy to lose sight of this because we have all these powerful forces in our lives, whether it's social media or cable news or what have you, that make being angry all the time seem so much more entertaining. But that just means remembering the importance of family and living well with others whose values we might not share is so crucial. So to talk about all this, I brought on the senior editor of The Dispatch, author of the <laughs> impeccably named newsletter, The French Press, and one of the great teachers of our time about faith in American life, David French. David, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You know, before I talk about family relationships with you that hold or should hold, you know, America as a whole together, I actually want to talk about literal family relationships. One of my favorite things you've ever written was an essay for The Atlantic called America Soured on My Multiracial Family about your family's decision to adopt. And I've reread it like a mm -hmm. hundred times and I always <laughs> get a, a little misty. <laughs> and the really, really short version of it is that you and your wife bring this wonderful little girl into your family in the biblical spirit of caring for the widow and the orphan, as you mentioned in the piece. And so first of all, can you tell us a little bit about this story? And, and second, what has this experience taught you about loving someone that all sorts of people of all sorts of political persuasions keep insisting you have or should have nothing in common with? Yeah. So I can't even remember the first time that I thought I want to adopt. This is something I felt led to do. I felt called to do. And my wife and I decided to adopt shortly before I deployed to Iraq. And that was in 0708. I deployed with the third armored cavalry regiment as part of the surge. And we said, if I get back, we will start the adoption process. So I got back in late 08. We started the adoption process in early 09. We chose Ethiopia in part because our church had a ministry there in Addis Ababa. And we would have, you know, local support if we needed it. So we adopted in 2010. Beautiful girl. Her name is Naomi. And, you know, one of the things... When you're adoptive dad, there's no sort of pride, like there's no arrogance in saying, my daughter's beautiful <laughs> because <laughs> it's not you my had genes. nothing I'm to not do with it. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not bragging on my genes. 
But anyway, she's absolutely beautiful, just absolutely delightful. And early in the adoptive experience, it was just nothing but love and support from all those around us. But my wife and I are both, to some extent, in the public eye in this really contentious political environment. And it wasn't long before we began to get some real anger directed at us, first from folks on the left side of the spectrum who say that a white family can't possibly raise a black child, that everything from hair to you know teaching her about America's history, teaching her to cope with the present realities of American racism, that we're just completely not equipped. And sometimes that idea was expressed very angrily. I will say, as like an Ashkenazi Jew hair is not going to be a problem of mine for very much longer. So, you know, (laughs) (laughs) well, it's already, it's not a problem for me and it's not been a problem for me for a long time. (laughs) Right. Um, But, you know, there's legitimate concerns about things like hair and there's legitimate concerns about things like the, you know, teaching a child about, you know, America's past and America's present. All of these things are legitimate, but the very idea that a white family couldn't raise Uh, effectively raise a black child, I thought was repugnant. You know, a good family deals with the challenges. And I was angry and I was saddened by it. And as somebody who comes from uh, a conservative Republican background, it was sort of further evidence that, you know, some of those, not all of those people, but some of those people on the left have got a real problem with race. So, you know, we're, we're living our lives. And then in 2015, I started to voice opposition to the rise of Donald Trump and to some of his supporters online. And then we got hammered with this incredible wave of explicitly racist hate from many of Trump's alt-right supporters. So pictures of my daughter were photoshopped into gas chambers with Trump photoshopped as being in an SS uniform to press the button to, to kill her. She was photoshopped into like old images of of black men and women in slave fields, just super brutally explicit racist rhetoric. There were people who found my wife's blog on the on the religious website Pathios and filled it with gruesome images of dead and dying African-Americans. It was horrible. And things escalated into the offline world with death threats and other kinds of wow, other kinds of uh, reprisals. And it stunned me. I mean, it just stunned me. And so, you know, all of a sudden we went from this experience where in 2010, 2011, everyone's quite loving and supportive to 2015, 2016, where we literally worried for our lives. And it was a horrible <laughs> experience. It was a horrible wow. experience. But through it all, we have shielded Naomi from this. We've protected Naomi from this. Now she's getting older. She's almost 13. And and we're going to you know have to deal with the reality of what occurred. And we're going to have to begin to really walk through that and talk through that, which is really, really hard. But you know, God is good. She is thriving. She's just an awesome preteen. <laughs> to the extent um, that such a thing is possible, you know. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, you know, middle school, No, very few people peak in middle school. Let's right. just put it that way. Um, so we've had this really wonderful, per, you know, familial experience of adoption. At the same time, we've had to fend off first one wave of anger from the far left and then a wave of what I would call pure hatred from the very far right. And so, you know, there are 
They're kind of horrible people coming at you from both ends. And at the same time, there you guys are in the middle with differences, right? In other words, you're, you know, you're from America, you're yeah. older, you have a child who's younger, who's from a different part of the world. And you guys in many ways are acting out what I think we sort of aspire for Americans to act out writ large, which is people who are different from each other, finding ways to really deeply love each other, notwithstanding. So like, what has that experience taught you about that? Well, you know, I think one of the things that I think is absolutely crucial and indelible in the multiracial familial experience is that all of a sudden you start to view the world through the eyes of, in part, you know, not ex not perfectly, but through the eyes of your black daughter, you know, and you start to sort of see the way in which she is experiencing the world because the way in which she experiences the world is also in many ways the way in which your family starts to experience the world. And so that's been something that sort of really changed my perspective about, for example, the prevalence of racism in the United States of America. You know, it's worse than I thought it was. <laughs> it's more prevalent than I thought it was because, you know, when you, when you grow up and you're in a, when you're in a college educated, predominantly white environment, racism is very frowned upon. Like overt racism is, is a cultural taboo. And so you're going to go through most of your life without, you know, you're not going to encounter it because even if someone is a racist, they don't want to out themselves in the social circle and, and, you know, be ostracized. And so you sort of just through your own experience, you, you sort of think, well, this is something that's kind of in the past, but let's just say, let's be optimistic and say that say only one out of every 10 Americans is racist. And it's deeply frowned upon in particularly in certain kinds of educated white social circles. Well, if you're African-American, then one out of every 10 people you're going to encounter is racist. It's a pretty bad ratio. <laughs> it's a bad ratio. And so it's going to be kind of part of the background experience of your life. And it will come at you in sometimes surprising ways. And it will come at you kind of, it, you know, it, it can come at you at kind of any moment. And we've had that experience with Naomi and sometimes in ways that have shocked us. I mean, and in environments that have really shocked us. And so, you know, one of the things I think that you're talking about, about learning to live across differences is that, you know, you learn to step in the shoes of people who, for example, look different from you and the experience that they have because they look different from you. You, you step into their shoes and you begin to see the world through their eyes. And I think that that is something, you know, I think as we kind of fight through this race issue and continue to fight through the race issue in the United States of America. I think it's these multi-racial families that are going to play a big part because they've got kind of a foot in all the camps. <laughs> so, so I actually, I actually love that idea about family being an opportunity to sort of experience a different type of story, because I think one of the most powerful things about family is the idea that everyone in the family has this shared story, this shared past that's unique to them. That's where I think America is so fascinating and I think deeply special in that it's really the only nation on earth with such an extraordinary commitment to the idea that you can actually become part of the American story without right. actually having experienced it. So like in 1776, my ancestors were kicking around Poland. And right. in 1863, my great-great-grandfather was moving with his parents from like Hungary to Jerusalem. And yet, I feel very deeply and genuinely that the American founding and the Gettysburg Address are part of my past and my family's story as well. So 
So what is it about America that allows us to share these stories, even if we never experience them ourselves? And how do we make sure that capacity survives into the future? I think one of the things that a lot of people overlook about our founding that was absolutely critical to it, because when we look back at the founding with modern eyes, we often minimize the diversity of the early American Republic. We think, oh, this is just a bunch of like mainly Christian propertied white guys, <laughs> you know, and it doesn't seem very diverse. But the in- really interesting thing about the American founding is that for it to exist as the nation that it became, it had to be built upon a foundation of accommodating differences. And allowing that sort of out of many one sort of concept, allowing for that to occur. Why do I say that? Well, if you look at the eastern seaboard of the United States of America in 1776, much less when the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were ratified, you look down that eastern seaboard and you will see basically every major combatant in the wars of religion that had ripped Europe to shreds in the previous century are represented in significant population clusters running right down the eastern seaboard of the U.S. I mean, from Puritans and, you know, uh, people adherents of Reformation theology to Catholics to Anglicans to, you know, and so you had all of these different religious strands. And through American eyes, now you look at that and say, big deal, because, you know, if you live in the South, like In the census, it's all Christian, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's all Christian. And you drive down big roads in the South and you'll see all those denominations, like one after the other, after the other, after the other. And you forget that, you know, rewind the clock a few hundred years and those denominations after they finish worship would be going out and raiding the next door property. And so what we essentially did is we said, okay, the way we're going to exist together is we're going to also allow you to exist separately, if that makes sense. In other words, you can form and build and sustain a distinct community that advances your values in this culture while also being fully American. And that was a unique thing. And so that was something different. You know, I'm reminded of George Washington's letter to the Hebrew congregation of Rhode Island, where he refers to the prophet Micah in that. And this was actually, you know, words that Washington referred to almost 50 times in his writing. Yeah, it's one of the ones that appears most in his writings. Yes, exactly. Lin-Manuel Miranda repopularized it with, you know, Hamilton. (laughs) But every man shall sit under his own vine and his own fig tree, and no one shall make him afraid. And what I think is so critical about that is the words his own, his own vine, his own fig tree. And so you're both part of this American family and you have something that is distinctly yours within it. And that's sort of the vision of American pluralism. That's the vision of American religious freedom. That's the vision of American free speech. That's a vision of this distinctly American concept that says you can be both separate and together at the same time. And that is very powerful. And it's kind of the only way this thing works because we're not all going to agree. We all come from, we come from many different competing strands that in other parts of the world have fought each other to the death. And we come from these competing strands into this constitutional structure that gives us that pride of togetherness and also maintains the pride of our distinct identities. And that is That's like a wonder of the modern world. (laughs) The former chief rabbi of the UK, Jonathan Sachs, who who passed away about a week or two ago, has this wonderful way of describing this where he talks about, you know, 
three different models of society. And he applies it the way you just did, where he kind of says there's like the manor house model where there's like a dominant, you know, there's a dominant culture or group and everybody else is sort of welcome there as long as they understand that they're just guests. Yeah. Then there's the melting pot model, which is everybody kind of homogenizes and becomes the same. And that also, you know, that's great because everybody kind of equalizes, but you have to check your uniqueness at the door. And the model that he prefers, which he kind of sees rooted in the in the biblical story, is the home we build together, right? Where mm-hmm. each of us comes with kind of our unique tools and stories and histories, and we actually work on a project together. That's the way that we sustain this thing. I mean, it seems to me that America is kind of the best laboratory experiment of that. Yeah, in so many ways. And what what's really important, I think, for people to realize is that, you know, a lot of people would listen to that and say, well, David, what about, you know, all of the injustices that existed at the founding and, and were sustained for a very long time? And you've really, haven't you just really idealized the American story a bit much? And I think the answer to that is this. So, you know, we've heard a lot of argument and discussion about the 1619 Project, right? 1619 being the year when slaves were first brought to American shores. The way I look at the American story in a lot of ways is the battle between 1619 and 1776. So 1619 is kind of a symbol that this new civilization being built on the eastern seaboard of the North American continent was going to be a lot like all the other civilizations. (laughs) It was going to be plagued with all of the same injustices and all of the same problems because it's not as if the American colonists invented slavery. I mean, this is something that had been going on or oppression. It had been going on for a long time. But when 1776 and the Declaration of Independence is written and then the principles of the Declaration of Independence are codified in the Constitution, what happened is you had an immediate tension was created. An unsustainable tension was created between the reality of things like slavery and the aspiration of all men are created equal, or the aspiration of free speech, the aspiration of uh, free exercise of religion. And what you have seen over the long course of American history is that the reality of oppression has given way to the aspiration of liberty and created a new reality of expanding liberty. And I think every American generation sort of steps into the shoes of that story in a material way. And so you do feel like you're part of that legacy. You do feel like you're part of that history because each generation sort of plays their own part in that ongoing American story. So I've been working on this this kind of thought for a little while now. I have this this kind of theory that it's really critical. Again, just the looking at the the long and deep and and in many ways unique role that the Bible and biblical thought has kind of played in the American social consciousness for a while. I feel like there is a Hebrew biblical concept that's critical to understanding kind of that tension between 1619 and 1776. And it's it's the concept of Brit, which is the biblical Hebrew word for covenant, right? Because there's mm-hmm. the, the idea of a covenant doesn't really have a contemporary counterpart uh, because we kind of think of America and Rousseauian or Hobbesian terms, it's a social contract. It's a contract. And a contract, what distinguishes a contract is that it's entered into by consent, sort of equally by two parties. Uh, Everybody kind of agrees to the idea. A covenant in the ancient world, both outside the Bible and in the Bible itself, is the opposite. It's a completely involuntary agreement. And it's imposed by a more powerful party upon a weaker party, usually by a king upon a vassal. And in the Hebrew Bible, it's even more involuntary. It's God upon a people. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could think of America as having a, a covenant with God. Americans have thought that way. But in a secular civic sense, I think it's almost easier to think about America as having an involuntary covenant with a set of ideas and ideals mm-hmm. um, to which we're bound whether we like it or not. And that was Frederick Douglass's response to the colonization uh, argument, which is, what do you mean? I'm just as bound by the ideas and ideals of freedom, even though I didn't choose to accept them upon myself when I came here. And the interesting thing about that is that covenants, first of all, what distinguishes covenants is that they're involuntary. But what also distinguishes them is that at major inflection points in your history, you always have to, as in the Bible, you have to renew the covenant. A contract is binding as soon as you sign it, but a covenant needs to be constantly renewed and you need to constantly tell and retell your story, sometimes in contradictory ways from how you told it before. So Lincoln does this at the Gettysburg Address. He completely reframes the founding from liberty and human equality being a self-evident truth to being a proposition. It's not self-evident. It actually needs to be demonstrated. And the other way I think this is useful for thinking about the role of race and racism in the in the United States, which is in many ways our original sin, is that, you know, if you kind of take a, a standard social contract view of American exceptionalism, you kind of need to shoehorn American greatness into a 1776-sized box. And it's <laughs> it's very hard to do that. But covenantal logic basically says that's crazy. You know, when Abraham creates a covenant with God, when Moses and the Israelites create a covenant with God, monotheism is the new world order. And you'd think idolatry just disappears. No, it takes like a thousand years and you need these like B-side kings like Hezekiah and Josiah a thousand years later to actually get rid of it. And I think that's the process we're going through. We sort of, we enunciate the terms of the covenant, but we actually have to renew it constantly, whether through the Civil War, whether through the Civil Rights Movement. And we're going through another moment of covenant renewal now. I think that kind of helps us sort of retain the glory of American exceptionalism without having to shoehorn all of our greatness into our past. I like that analogy. You know, Abraham, God made a covenant with Abraham. He's going to make a great people out of Abraham. And Abraham has like a kid. Right, right, right. <laughs> you start slow, you build it up. You know? <laughs> exactly. And so it's sort of, you know, this, this, the promise of 1776, the promise of the Bill of Rights is essentially saying, I'm going to make of you, this constitution is going to make of you this land of liberty. But a lot of people are going, uh, I'm not free. <laughs> yeah. I'm not free. But it's out there. You know, what, what I think is really interesting about the American story is if you look at social change in a lot of other countries um, and movements towards justice in a lot of other countries, what, what had to happen for change to occur in those countries is the movement had to essentially be revolutionary to say, we need to upend the existing structure. We need to overthrow the existing structure. Time and time again, from, you know, Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King Jr. and many others, they'd say, no, 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 we need to extend the existing structure. You need to expand it. You need to apply its principles that the actual beef that we have is not with the American founding or the American constitution. The actual beef that we have is that you're not applying the principles right. of the American founding. We need renewal, covenant renewal. Exactly. Exactly. No, I, I really like that. So my last question for you is, is that right now, if I look at American life and the world of American ideas, it feels like a lot a lot more interesting thinking than I'd ever have imagined is going on on the relative extremes of American politics. So like progressives on the left and post-liberals on the right are coming up with new ideas that are very appealing to people, I think, because they're fresh. And now I see you as one of the great defenders of the American center. 
And by the way, J- Jackman had this hilarious tweet today. I mean, not intending it to be so, but they kind of accused Joe Biden uh, of being on the extreme center. And that, yes. And extreme. <laughs> I, I, I kind of felt like they were using extreme there the same way that we use ultimate when we talk about ultimate Frisbee, like, you know, just total. <laughs> but but the the center which I see you as one of the really great defenders of, seems to have won a real victory in this presidential election. So my question is, for those who who are committed to an American centrism, so how does American centrism keep a sense of urgency over the next couple of years, right? So my grandfather and teacher, Rabbi Norman Lamb, who, who I talked about on this podcast a couple times before, so he defined himself as a religious centrist. He was one of the great American uh, Jewish thinkers of the last hundred years. And he had this wonderful line, I heard him say often, to the effect of, the problem with with centrists like himself is that too often they're moderate about their passions rather than passionate about their moderation. So <laughs> I like that. It's one of my favorites. So how would you keep Americans passionate about their moderation? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. And, and it's really interesting to me how things change, because if you had rewound the clock uh, five years, nobody would describe me as a centrist. Right, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I'm conservative. You know, I was I was a conservative. But then when you begin to see sort of the wings of American politics getting larger and moving further away, and if you just kind of stay camped where you were, <laughs> right. Suddenly, you find that you're what wait a minute. I'm a centrist now. How did this happen? Here's where I think that there are various tensions in play here. So here's one. There's the old school culture war that says that American cultural conflicts are over specific kinds of political issues. How much gun regulation will there be? What are the precise parameters of religious liberty? What kind of restrictions should be placed on abortion? All of those things are important issues that are channeled through an agreed upon American system of government, an agreed upon you know, American constitutional structure. That culture war, interestingly enough, is being eclipsed by a different culture war, which says, no, we don't agree on the American systems of government anymore. That's where you begin to see the battles between the folks who are critiquing liberalism itself on the right and attacking liberalism itself on the left. And so all of a sudden, people who used to fight with each other about, say, gun restrictions suddenly find themselves locking arms to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. We might disagree on, say, gun restrictions, but we completely agree on the basic principles of the American founding, on small L liberalism itself, on basic values like free speech, et cetera, et cetera. If it was May 2015 and you went to sleep and you woke up, you know, November of 2020, you would say, wait, who's friends now and who's not? (laughs) This doesn't make any sense. Because what has happened is the terms of sort of the primal American debate have begun to shift to not just a battle over policies, but over liberalism, small L liberalism itself. And this is something has become in many ways sort of the overarching cultural conflict in the U.S. is is to preserve small L liberalism itself. It was interesting. I was on a, a call with about 40 of my closest friends the other day on Zoom. And we were from, you know, what you would say, 2015 era left and right. I mean, we're all over the map uh, ideologically. Like a thousand years ago. A thousand years ago, 2015. (laughs) 
And we're talking about this sort of this effort to preserve small L liberalism, this effort to preserve the basic values of free speech, respect for elections, you know, things like this. And we're talking about how would we judge victory in this battle? And I said, I think we'll judge victory in this battle when we're not as close friends anymore because we're fighting over gun control. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That the larger superstructure of American government and American liberalism will have been preserved. And then we get to go back to sort of more, quote unquote, normal political conflicts. You want the Zoom call to be no more than 10 people, max, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so I think that that's, you know, when you're talking about centrism, you know, that's what I think of nowadays when I think of like centrism. It isn't where are you on gun control? It's where are you on classical liberalism? It's values, not issues. Yes, exactly. And then the other one is temperament. And this is huge. So there is a a moderation in temperament that I think is very critical to the preservation of American political norms where you can take very weighty issues and reason your way through them as opposed to shout your way through them or intimidate your way through them. And so I could have somebody say on my political side who might agree with me on A, B, C, D, and E issues, but because I'm not going to shout about them, they think I'm a sellout. And I'm sitting here thinking, no, what I'm trying to do is persuade and also preserve this sort of national fellowship of this national family to go back to the beginning of the podcast do you love your uncle or do you scream at your uncle? You know, do you treat him respectfully and affectionately or do you scream at him? And you could disagree just as much, but the treating him with respect and affection is infinitely preferable to the screaming and the yelling and the fit pitching. And yet a lot of American politics is now saying if you're not screaming, if you're not yelling, if you're not pitching the fit, then you're not fighting. But I say what you're actually doing is dividing when you're doing that. So there's a sort of a values proposition here, defensive liberalism, small liberalism, and also a temperament proposition here. The defense of basically the golden rule, (laughs) you know, try to treat somebody the way you would like to be treated. And that those propositions are in many ways swallowing a lot of the other policy disputes that have divided us in the past. Less screaming, more loving. I love it. David, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Very happy to do it. Look, I know yelling and screaming is a lot of fun and sometimes just really cathartic. And that's why it's so important to remember that what we're building in America is not just a social contract, not just another nation state. We're building a family. So let's try to remember what even a loudmouth like Esau knew, which is that family is precious and we should do everything we can to cultivate those relationships and keep them strong, even if that means spending even more time with people we'd rather not. Because in the end, those bonds are the things that'll keep us strong. This is Ari Lamb for Good Faith Effort. See you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. 
follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.